Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. I really think coaching is central to HRD practice. So if you think about HRD professionals, some of them might actually serve as internal coaches within their organizations. They might even be resources for building coaching cultures in their organizations. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this second series, I'm joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is coaching, and we'll be looking at what it means by the term coaching and how it differs from mentoring, what it takes to become a good coach, moderating factors that help and hinder the coaching process, the use of internal and external coaches as well as virtual coaching, the more commonly found coaching models, tools and techniques, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by two leading scholars. Dr. Andrea D. Ellinger, Emerita Professor, the University of Texas at Tyler, and Dr. Jenny Jones, Associate Professor, University of Wolverhampton. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them. Those one-to-one conversations are brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the University of Southern Mississippi's Human Capital Development Graduate Programs. Then, for the second part, Andrea and Jenny are together to explore their shared interest in coaching. That group conversation is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, Sherpa Coaching. Ready to activate your leadership potential? Sherpa Coaching can help you. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded between September and December of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet our guests. Here in the first section of the episode, I'll meet one-to-one with each guest. This section is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the University of Southern Mississippi's Human Capital Development Graduate Programs. They academically prepare students to improve performance in organizations through the talents of people. Students experience a think tank environment to solve today's workplace issues through connections with peers, the curriculum, and award-winning faculty. The programs are offered through online and executive formats and respected internationally as leading innovation in human capital development as evidenced by the quality of graduates and faculty research. Find out more by Googling USM space HCD. You'll find their page at the top of the search results or by emailing them at schoolofleadership at usm.edu. My first guest for the episode is Dr. Andrea D. Ellinger, Emerita Professor of Human Resource Development in the Souls College of Business at the University of Texas at Tyler. 
Andrea has received several teaching, research, and service awards during her career, including the Outstanding HRD Scholar Award for 2012 from the Academy of Human Resource Development. She's a former editor of Human Resource Development Quarterly and currently serves on multiple editorial boards. Andrea has an extensive publishing record and has presented her research regionally, nationally, and internationally. Her research interests include informal learning, organizational learning and learning organizations, managerial coaching and mentoring, employee engagement, and organizational change and development. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on coaching. Well, hello, Darren. It's lovely to join you. I'm really pleased to do so. Perhaps a good place to start is with definitions. You know, in my experience, the term coaching gets used in many different ways and sometimes is used almost interchangeably with the term mentoring. So I was wondering what is meant by the term coaching and and how it differs from a term like mentoring? Well, I think that's a really good question. And I must admit that defining coaching can be really challenging because I don't really think that there's a universally agreed upon definition at this point in time. Some years ago, my colleagues, Bob Hamlin and Rona Beatty and I identified and analyzed at least 36 definitions of coaching that we obtained from other literature reviews that had been performed by Anthony Grant and Brian Jew, and of course, our own examinations of the literature. So there's no shortage of definitions of coaching whatsoever. So while I like to think that these definitions may be describing a specific type of coaching, such as coaching in general, um, some define executive coaching, others business coaching, others life coaching, managerial coaching or managers as coaches, workplace coaching. And the work that Bob Rohn and I did, we determined that there are some overall similarities across these definitions. What seems to be fairly consistent are the notions of helping individuals and organizations to improve their performance in various domains, also to enhance personal development and growth through the use of some type of a facilitation activity or intervention. So the idea of a process kind of is also consistent across these different definitions. Coaching and mentoring are often used interchangeably. I mean, some scholars actually do consider them to be fairly synonymous, but I don't, and I don't necessarily consider them to be um, interchangeable. I do think that there are some commonalities and some overlap, but um, there are some distinctions. In terms of how they might be similar, they're both considered to be developmental relationships, and they typically refer to a helping partnership, maybe some kind of a relationship that's predicated upon trust and personal engagement. Um, But my sense is that there are distinctions that are worthwhile noting. So I tend to kind of see coaching and mentoring as distinct, but somewhat related to. Um, When I think about traditional forms of mentoring, and I think about traditional definitions that have been proffered in the early literature, it was always somewhat conceived as a more experienced person, the mentor, providing mentoring functions to a younger and lesser experienced protege. When I think about mentoring, it's typically very long-term. It's a longer-term relationship, perhaps, than coaching. It's typically focused on potential future issues that are generally a little bit more career-related. So I would say a little bit more uh, focused on potential in the future. So when I think about mentoring, those are the things that somewhat come to mind for me. In contrast, when I think about coaching, I think that coaching is also um, less focused on this issue of whether the coach is older or has more or less experience than the coachee. 
it really, for me, seems to be focused on a process which tends to be a little bit more egalitarian. I mean, the idea that there's equality in the, in the relationship and partnership is what I would say more current contemporary approaches for coaching and embrace. Um, I think coaching can be externally contracted. It can be internally provided. It can be very spontaneous, uh, provided by managers and supervisors as part of their daily interactions and work with their employees. Um, so when I think about coaching, uh, what more also uh, concerns me is more on the present, more focused on improving current skills and performance issues in the context of work, and generally involves some type of feedback where I kind of think mentoring might be a little bit more life-wide. Given that we're focusing initially in the conversation on definitions, I'm wondering if it's also worth then exploring what you see as the relationship between coaching and HRD? So I would say that coaching is evolving and a number of scholars and researchers consider coaching or what is now the coaching profession to be its own relatively new field of study and an applied field of practice with intellectual roots that can be traced to a lot of different disciplines. So what we really have is the emergence of a coaching industry over the years with investments in various types of coaching that have been increasing over the years with a lot of great potential in the future. Um, I found a wonderful report that was available to me by the International Coaching Federation, and it's a 2020 report based upon survey data that they did in 2019. And what they identified was the estimated global revenue from coaching in 2019 was 2.849 billion US dollars, which was a 21% increase over the 215 estimate. And they also noted that there are 71,000 practicing coaches worldwide. So, you know, coaching is definitely um, an industry that has uh, just really, really taken off because of the tremendous value that I think it can provide. So when I think about the relationship between coaching and HRD, I guess what I'd like to think is that we have these specific fields of study and practice with, with a lot of professionals who engage in research and practice within them, who have their own specific publishing venues that are quite distinct sometimes, and who relate to these specific fields as their respective professional homes. So, you know, there is the, the, the coaching uh, discipline, if you will call it that, in human resource management, human resource development. And there is overlap among them, but there are also some uniquenesses that have been pointed out, you know, by John Warner and others as it relates to HRM and, and HRD and Wendy Rona and Sharon Gibson, who did a wonderful article years ago on looking at, you know, these, these different um, disciplines. So to me, coaching has kind of created its space um, but when I think about myself as an HRD professional, a researcher and scholar and someone who's been in the field and committed to the field for more than 23 years, I really think coaching is central to HRD practice. Um, we have a very rich history in our field of having coaching being included in a number of competency studies that have examined HRD competencies and functions over the years. Um, you might remember the former American Society of Training and Development, which is now the Association for Talent Development. They commissioned a number of studies uh, very early on with Pat McLagan and then more recently with Bill Rothwell and his colleagues. And they've consistently identified coaching as a core activity or an area of expertise within the HRD domain. Because if you think about HRD professionals, you know, we can play a lot of different roles in the HRD coaching context, but also in the industry itself. 
So if you think about HRD professionals, some of them might actually serve as internal coaches within their organizations. They might even be resources for developing coaching capability and building coaching cultures in their organizations. It might even be that they have to be serving as brokers and they're the ones that are responsible for identifying and then hiring external coaches that the organization needs to bring in to provide coaching. So to me, I do think coaching is really something that HRD professionals do. I also recognize that not everyone sees that, you know, coaching is only something that HRD professionals do and that coaching isn't necessarily only owned or, or executed in the HRD context. I, so I, I do understand that other coaching professionals um, will see their affinity and their affiliations really with this broader coaching profession and coaching industry. So in answering that question, you talked a bit about the large number of people who define themselves as coaches. So it takes me into thinking about who coaches and how do they coach? There are a lot of different forms that coaching can take, or what I would say different roles that people who coach can play. Um, and again, I kind of used HRD professionals as, as a great example to uh, illustrate how many different ways they can engage in coaching roles in their organizations. But again, that's not the only uh, group of individuals who can coach. Managers and supervisors are increasingly being asked to coach, and they are increasingly being held responsible for developing their, their employees. Um, it's possible that peers and subject matter experts coach, you know, the notion of peer coaching, um, the notion of having those professional coaches that I alluded to that are external to the organization, such as contracted executive coaches, workplace coaches, business coaches, career and life coaches, just among a, a handful of different titles of coaches that would be coming outside into an organization to provide their expertise. So when I think about this and I think about just the terminology, I always think it's really important when talking about coaching or writing about coaching to be clear on terminology because different coaching terms may not have the same meaning or certainly the same definitions and there might be some aspects to these different types of coaching or what we might call forms or genres of coaching that might be similar. I mean, typically most coaching is done in, in kind of a process-oriented way. It's process-based, but there also are many differences. So for example, some might suggest that managers have a hierarchy and, and have a little bit more power over their employees. Although when we think about um, even in that coaching capacity, we really try to emphasize the equality of power, which is expected in that kind of a relationship to make it really work. Um, I think there's also a degree of formality or informality that has to be considered. What the goals are of coaching and then what kind of approaches are gonna be used and what do we expect the outcomes to be? So you can see that there are a lot of different kinds of coaches or different types of coaches, but typically they all use some type of a process when they're coaching um, and, and despite these different types of coaches, um, it, there is a process that's going to be used and it might be more formalized as an intervention, particularly with the external coaches being contracted where they might perform some kind of a needs assessment, you know, engage in relationship building, 
identify with their client what the goals are to be accomplished and then kind of work collaboratively in a kind of a co-partnership way to um, help that coachee develop whatever that coachee needs to accomplish the goals. And then there is likely going to be some kind of follow-up plan. So that's just kind of a basic sense of how that could work. And then also when I think about managerial coaching, you know, which is provided internally by managers or supervisors, it might be so informal and spontaneous that it's baked into the everyday roles that managers who embrace coaching in their words and actions are providing. So in your experience, what does it take to become a good coach in terms of knowledge, skills and mindset? When I think about the knowledge that's required, uh, certainly with the intentions of coaching to be developmental and very growth oriented, then to me, an understanding of how adults learn, develop and change is really important. Adult development models and theories would also be core areas. Uh, certainly a lot of the, the published literature on coaching more generally speak to, you know, the importance of drawing on insights from the fields of psychology, sociology, because of the very context that coaching occurs in. Certainly communication studies is really important. Leadership and management is a core area, given that a lot of coaching is done to enhance leadership and management capacity and capability. And when I think about skills, you know, again, I think that, you know, what a good coach has to have are really critically important communication skills. They're just essential. The ability to actively listen and listen with um, what I would say a fine-tuned ear or set of ears so that they really hear what, what the person is telling them. Uh, also having really good questioning skills, what I've often referred to as um, question framing, being able to ask questions in such a way that empowers the, the coachee to actually have to think through things a little bit more. Um, certainly having the ability to provide feedback in a thoughtful, constructive manner that uh, is not necessarily punitive in any way, but is, is done in the spirit of helping that person to grow and develop, but also being able to solicit feedback from someone as well. Certainly facilitation skills, uh, really good interpersonal skills because coaching is a relational activity. Aside from the skills, what I really think is important, and this is an area that really hasn't had a lot of research attention given to it, and in particular, you know, with regard to managerial coaching, is this notion of the mindset, the coaching mindset, or sometimes it's referred to as the mental models of coaches or the belief systems and belief sets that coaches hold. And I think they're, however you call them, you know, mindset, mental models, or beliefs, you know, this kind of rationale or, 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 or way we think about, um, you know, coaching actually is critical because it guides the behaviors that we actually enact. It, so it's very much that our minds influence the behaviors that we will engage in. With so much there in terms of depth of knowledge and range of skills and the importance of mindset, how does someone go about becoming a good coach and what's the role of HRD in supporting them as they do that? What I consider what's required of becoming a good coach, it's, I think it is about training and pe preparation to take on the role. Um, and again, to my knowledge at present, there's really not a universally agreed upon industry standard, but I would say rather a growing array of coaching academic programs that are now available coaching specializations, if you will, minors, majors, 
and then a, a, a growing number of professional associations that all offer some kind of training or maybe certificate program, some type of certification or credentialing. So, you know, when I think that in organizations that embrace coaching um, and want to develop a culture of coaching, I really think HRD has an important role to play here because not only can they develop coaching potential among managers and other employees as well, because I, I think that it's important to recognize that, you know, employees who are coachees also have the opportunity sometimes to coach upward. And sometimes they don't even realize it, but an employee might recognize something that their manager could improve upon. They might be able to provide feedback to their manager or to other employees. So my sense is that HRD professionals can do a lot in terms of not only helping managers and supervisors, frontline people, senior level managers and executives understand the practice of coaching and how to coach well, but it can kind of, you know, in a way cascade throughout the organization so that people develop the skills to be able to engage with other people developmentally to provide feedback um, so that they can learn, develop and grow. Uh, so aside from HRD professionals kind of doing some of those things, I also think they have to be pretty savvy in terms of identifying and hiring or contracting professional coaches, because it might not be that all organizations have the capacity to create coaching capability from within. So they might need to, you know, kind of jumpstart that by bringing external people in. And so you really then need to have a good understanding of, of what credentials are, uh, where they're coming from. Are they, you know, from accredited organizations? Are they not accredited? You know, what is, what is the extent to which the training that uh, is being provided, you know, going to meet a certain standard? So I think they need to be very savvy um, in terms of being able to uh, assess really good external coaches coming in. And then I think they also have to provide coaching training themselves. You know, that's probably what they're going to do in terms of developing this capacity in other people. One of the themes that's gone through the various episodes that we've done in the podcast has been about how HRD has been impacted by changes in technology, by shifts to remote work. So, so I'm wondering whether, what changes you've seen with coaching as a result of these and indeed how coaching has changed over the years? Well, you know, as I think about this, it seems to me that maybe very early on, coaching might have been conceived a little bit more as a, a remedy for poor performance. Um, maybe it might have been remedial, sometimes a little bit punitive, something that wasn't necessarily cast in a positive light. Um, I remember early research um, on executive coaching kind of highlighted it as a tool for derailing managers. You know, So I think now in the context of the workplace, coaching has become much more developmentally oriented. And I think employees expect to be developed. And I, I think they expect a number of um, providers in the organization to help them learn and grow. You know, when I think about um, some of the changes and you kind of mentioned issues around technology and, and certain the ongoing pandemic, I mean, I think that these are having a major impact. Um, you know, some statistics that I sourced from the International Coaching Federation were very clear about painting a picture of what coaching looked like pre-pandemic. So in other words, some of the statistics that I shared with you were, were from 19 or 2019, but you know, the report became available in 2020 just before the pandemic really began to take hold. So they kind of refer to this as what coaching was. 
Um, so now with the onset of the pandemic in early spring 2020, and now we're really, you know, a year and a half into this, what we've seen is the need for individuals and organizations very early on, um, they had to quickly pivot to respond to shelter at home orders and remote work mandates. So when, when I think about all of these issues, I really think that coaching and, and even mentoring and, and other developmental relationships have been impacted. Typically, coaching's done face-to-face, it's done in person. And the benefit is because you're observing someone and you're, you're able to immediately provide some feedback or engage in a conversation or a reflective learning process. But not having that face-to-face opportunity to interact with people or what I call to engage in the hands-on of the hands-on of coaching, um, which I think is a high-touch process, we now see you know, technology being used as offering a media or, or a way for this, a vehicle for this to happen. And I think that you know, we're going to have to really think about the ways in which technology can be continued, continually developed and used to really maximize its impact because there's not a, a lot of research to my knowledge that's really gone into the different types of virtual coaching and even e-mentoring that is occurring, you know, to really understand, is it, is it as effective as face-to-face? Do coaches that are doing this virtually do the same things as coaches that are doing it face-to-face? I mean, there have been some studies by Hui and, and colleagues that came out in 2020 and some others but we have a lot more we need to learn. I'm, I'm aware of a new book that's forthcoming and it's called Connecting and Relating HRD Perspectives on Developmental Relationships that's uh, has, is forthcoming and co-edited by Raji Gosh and Holly Hutchins. And I would say that it would be very interesting if people are wanting to read a little bit more about the idea of these developmental relationships, uh, coaching, for example, in, in mentoring, and also in the virtual ways these things are happening and how it's happening across cultures and a whole host of other topics um, is very, very much um, something I would would recommend reading. Uh, I've had an opportunity to kind of get some uh, insights about the book, and I think that it will really be very useful as we grapple with a lot of these issues and a lot of these questions. Well, Andrea, that feels like a good place to wrap up this opening segment of the episode. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation on coaching. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed being involved in this and I look forward to the next uh, parts of this series. Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation with Jenny. I'll look forward to it. My second guest for the episode is Dr. Jenny Jones, Associate Professor in the Management and Leadership Department at the University of Wolverhampton Business School. Jenny has worked in the private, public, and not-for-profit sectors within HRM and HRD, manager and consultant-related roles. She's been working in higher education since 2004, currently chairing the faculty learning and teaching working and research groups. Her own research focuses on coaching, mentoring, leadership, and diversity, and her work has been published in a variety of book chapters and peer-reviewed journals including Human Resource Development International and the International Journal of Emergency Services. Jenny is also an active member of the EMCC regionally and across the UK. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on coaching. Thank you, Darren. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to having the conversation with you. 
as a place to start, I, I'm conscious that a lot of people associate the term coaching with the term mentoring. And so to begin our conversation, it would be worth talking a little bit about what you see as the relationship between coaching and mentoring. It's much discussed, isn't it? Um, the differences and the similarities between coaching and mentoring. I think coaching traditionally comes from very much a sort of looking at the here and now, the job on the job, the performance, the, the need to kind of improve something. Mentoring comes from a future focus, more career related, be related beyond the job uh, type approach. And normally for mentoring, it normally needed to be somebody more experienced um, and more senior, perhaps in an organisation. Um, perhaps not so much in terms of coaching. There's lots of definitions in relation to peer coaching, etc. So I think traditionally there were there were quite a lot of differences over time I think there have been blurred lines particularly within a kind of business context I think that's because different authors from different places have had different opinions different countries different opinions different contexts which we've already mentioned and I think context is everything really um, because when you think of mentoring in relation to the traditional apprenticeships although it was called mentoring it was probably more likely coaching and um, when you think about mentoring in health and education, it's probably more of a coaching type bias. I think over time, the, the lines of the lines have blurred a little. And I'm not sure that's always such a bad thing, because I think there are some similarities in both. I think in terms of skills, I think the skills are very similar. For me, the key skills are things around rapport building, listening, questioning, goal setting. The similarities of skill then cause sometimes confusion in the definitions. For me, I still think there is a bit of a difference. Um, and I know there's a view that actually, you know, that they're starting to merge because you hear people talking about a coach mentor. But for me, the skills are similar, but they are different in terms of purpose. Coaching is much more about um, performance, about enabling, about learning, about facilitating. It's a conversation with a purpose. I think, in fact, though, both of them are. But for me, mentoring is much more about the future focus, career related side of things. And Clutterbuck had a matrix, didn't he, some time ago where he talked about the four primary helping to learn styles. And he talked about coaching being one of the styles that you can use whilst mentoring. He talks about uh, mentoring being coaching plus. So I think you can coach and mentor together. Um, we all wear different hats, don't we? Particularly from a HRD profession, <laughs> we wear different hats for different reasons and for different things. But in short, I think there are still differences in terms of the purpose and the intervention and the reason for it, but the skills are very similar. And I think coaching is an empowering, enabling, facilitated, reflective learning conversation. And it can be about the here and now, and it can also be about the future. So I do think there is a crossover between the two. As part of your answer there, you talked about coaching essentially being a vehicle for enabling learning. And so, so I'm wondering what learning actually happens during the coaching process and what do we know about how learning changes over time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I think when you look at definitions of coaching and mentoring, they've mostly got learning in them because they're both learning conversations, aren't they? Both, they both facilitate learning. Both parties learn, hopefully. So in terms of learning, I see learning as the process a product and a function so a function as in the learning function because we're talking about hrd size of things but mostly for this conversation i thought we'd focus on the process and the product of learning so coaching and mentoring are 
a process, aren't there? There's a beginning, middle and end. There's some inputs, some outputs, etc. So the process of learning, I think, is just as important as the product of learning. Lots of people have done lots of studies in terms of the domains of learning and Hale um, has written some stuff about that. And I have as well. And the four domains that, that are sort of the result of, if you like, um, the product of the learning that comes from coaching and indeed mentoring are around the cognitive learning, the skills that are learned, the effective related learning and the social networks, the connections that come from that relationship. So in terms of cognitive learning, that's the knowledge. So in terms of the workplace, maybe some knowledge about the job, the knowledge about strategies, higher levels, different perspectives, etc. Skills are skills that are gained in that mutual relationship. We've already mentioned some skills, but relationship building, communication skills, maybe with some skills around work-life balance, coping with stress, etc. And then the effective related learning, which is the inner stuff, people's positivity, their proactivity, their motivation, their self-awareness their self-confidence some of that inner stuff and then the social networks already as we mentioned is people sharing their connection signposting to other places the connectivism kind of side of of the coaching conversation and what I've noticed is how that learning changes over time during the process of coaching the beginning middle and end of the process what's interesting is how that learning the product of learning changes over time so early on there's lots of knowledge that's shared. Middle-ish stage, there's some skills that are developed from both parties. But in the sort of middle to end stages, the increased intensity of learning is around the inner stuff. So the, the inner stuff like the self-confidence, the motivation. You can really see this kind of curve and where it really does um, start intensifying in the sort of middle to end stages, if you like, of the relationship which is so interesting because it just gives us some clues about how long the process perhaps should be. Um, if it's a very short-term coaching process, you might not get some of that inner stuff. You get some of that inner effective related learning over time because of the relationship over time, the trust that's built and other things that are built over time in the relationship. So I guess in short, it's interesting to see that both parties learn through coaching and indeed mentoring, which always puts it in my mind as such a, an important sort of learning and development intervention in the workplace because training, tutoring, etc., are often seen as a little bit more of a one-way process, whereas coaching is definitely a two-way process. But what's really interesting is over time, as the relationships build, some of that inner stuff is also learned. And what I found from the studies that I've been involved in is that inner stuff is the thing that prevails, the thing that lasts longer and the thing that then gets used most back into the workplace. Because what we want to make sure is that people aren't just learning within the relationship, but they're using that learning outside of that relationship in the workplace for their life or whatever other aspects of, of their life that they're involved in. Um, so it's interesting. So if you can affect some of that inner stuff through coaching, that'll last longer. That'll be deeper learning that will make a greater difference for the individual as a result. So all of that process that you've talked about isn't happening in a vacuum. It's, it's happening within a, a, a context, in most cases, a, an organization. So I'm wondering what you find are the moderating factors that either help or hinder the coaching process. So for me, there's um, in terms of moderating factors, there's helping factors. So there's enabling, facilitating factors and then there's hindering factors. 
So from a sort of helping, enabling, facilitating kind of point of view, having an organisational culture that is accepting, that is team focused, that is nurturing, um, that encourages and enables anyway in the workplace, that kind of organisational culture is massively enabling to anything that relates to coaching or indeed mentoring in the workplace. But the most important thing, I think, from an organisational point of view are the managers. And I say that in terms of any HRD related intervention, but particularly with coaching and indeed mentoring. If you've got enabling managers, you've got supportive managers, you've got managers that perhaps have been coached before or managers that, are, that use coaching skills or certainly encourage um, coaching around their teams, etc. Those managers will really make a difference in terms of encouraging coaching and supporting and enhancing coaching in the workplace. If you've got managers that block that way of thinking or just disinterested in this whole idea of coaching, then that is not only a blocker, but that will um, create all sorts of ineffective work practices as well. So from an organisational factor point of view, I think there's something about culture, something about communication, something about managers. From a scheme point of view, if we're talking about coaching as part of schemes, whether it's leadership programmes or management training or whether it's just coaching programmes um, to stand alone. We need to think about how people are matched, how people are trained, how coaches are supervised, etc. There's all those aspects of what makes a successful programme. In terms of relationship aspects, there's thoughts about time and location and distance. So if someone has to travel three hours to meet their coach, they're unlikely to do that too often. But what's interesting in some of the studies I've been involved in is the importance of similarity and difference in a relationship. So it's really handy when you're building rapport early on in a coaching relationship to have similarity because you've got some like mindedness. You've got some similar things to talk about and to make connections with. But actually, the most important thing in terms of helping is actually difference. When I'm thinking of coaching, if I'm matching coach to coachee, I'm often thinking, are they in a different bit of the organisation? Have they got different backgrounds? Have they got different outlooks on life? You know, I do, I do think the difference makes a huge difference in terms of the intensity of the learning over time as well. Although I've worked in organisations that don't want people to be matched by difference, but actually those that do really can see an additional gain from that. Individual aspects um, that help are people's readiness, people's motivations, people's willingness and motivation to get involved and get committed, and where barriers to individuals' um, progression or barriers to individuals' ability to take up a coaching opportunity where they have been removed. And that, again, is where managers come in. In talking through the moderating factors there, you referenced the importance of culture. And, and I've heard I've heard organizational leaders talk about wanting to have a culture of coaching. So I'm wondering, how would an organization or a team go about building a coaching culture? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think it's been something that's been much debated uh, by practitioners and academics alike over the last maybe 10, 20 years. If I was to list my top 10 things, I suppose my first thing would be about the organisational readiness. Um, so I would think have something around coaching in their vision, their mission, their strategy, their values of the organisation. So as we were talking about moderating factors, there, I was talking about having an organisation that's team focused, 
that is collaborative, that is nurturing and encouraging and celebrates people's successes, that kind of readiness, that kind of um, way of being, that kind of organisational culture really does help. The second thing would be back to managers. And I'd definitely be about having a sponsorship around this idea of coaching from those at higher levels so definitely senior managers need to demonstrate this stuff from the top they need to be using their own coaching skills they need to be celebrating those that use coaching and that support coaching there's also the HRD, OD, D side of things and coaching doesn't need to sit with them but it does need to be you know supported and it needs to be encouraged by them in terms of their own strategies going forward I think the third thing would be around having resources behind it. So it's great to say we want to have a coaching culture and let's think about how we can um, enact that. But there's often needs to be people behind it, some budget behind it. So, again, another reason to have senior managers involved in, in helping to put this push this forward. The fourth thing for me would be to make sure coaching is on offer to everybody at all levels. And it definitely doesn't become something that's related to capability or poor performance, which is something that is an old fashioned traditional view perhaps of coaching so it needs to be seen very much as an enabling and a thing that everybody you know should want to have to enhance you know their ability to do their role and to move forward etc but definitely I think to to make sure it's offered to everybody at all levels the fifth thing would be about creating multiple opportunities so don't just have a coaching program think about the leadership programs and how those people that are on those leadership development programs might need a coach or how they're coached think about how managers are trained you know the coaching elements of that think about um the recruitment process so back to hr hrm hrd you know it should be something that is encouraged that that you know that the enabling, the facilitating, the learning, all those fantastic things that coaches do should be something that should become the way we do things around here. And it isn't just a standalone kind of event. Another few things I'd say would be around having an infrastructure to support coaching. Um, So there are places to go where people um, can share their good news stories. There are places to go where people can get support if things aren't working as well as they'd hoped. There's supervision for those people that are involved in coaching. Another thing I think would be around um, the visibility of of coaching so it isn't just something that hrd do it's something that is expected of everybody in the organization in some way that they commit to and they use some of the skills in terms of their own roles and i guess my additional other things would be if there's a coaching program so people are formally trained as coaches and there's a coaching pool in organization or something like that that people are prepared well as coaches so they're supported, they're recruited, they're trained. Um, you know, we have high quality coaches in the workplace. Again, that sends a message. And there are all levels of the organisation as well. So it's very much applauded and celebrated and supported. My last couple of things would be around evaluating and celebrating the successes so people can see that it's good to buy into this thing called coaching because it definitely works. We know that, but it's definitely working in the organisation. It's making a real difference. My final thing, I think, would be about keeping up with the pace of change in the organisation. So if the organisation considers itself very innovative, 
you know, buying into new technology, then make sure whatever those innovations are, whatever the new technology might be, that it aligns so coaching can align to that and vice versa. So if we're saying, you know, we're a very digital savvy um, organization and we're being very innovative, but we only insist on coaching face to face in the real room with real people, then that kind of doesn't align with the way the organization might be moving. So I think it's about alignment. It's about involving everybody. It's about having it not just in pockets. So all those pockets add up to the way we kind of do things around here. So as organizations, um, encourage coaching and potentially take those steps to build a coaching culture is it possible for them to evaluate coaching and measure its impact and if so how would an organization go about doing that yes i think it's possible to do i think it's tricky and therefore i think many organizations avoid doing it in any sort of great depth but um, I think just because it's tricky doesn't mean it isn't worth a try. Um, and I think evaluation is about measuring the value of something. And, and I think value is often in the eyes of the beholder, if you like. So it's really important to be asking the right people about what it is that they've gained from both the process and the outcomes and impact of being involved in, in coaching. There's lots of qualitative things you can do to get a real sense of people's perceptions perceptions before during and after and then of course sometime after as well um, and there's other ways more tangibly as well because some organizations that invest heavily in coaching would like to sort of put some figures and some numbers on it um, so there's other things you can measure but I guess it comes back to what it is you wanted to get as a result of being involved in coaching in the first place if it's a coaching program and it's about supporting women into more senior positions or whatever that might be, then maybe there's a way of tangibly measuring people that are now in senior positions. Maybe there's a, a focus on retention. So then we can look at numbers about how many people have been retained or progressed or or moved on in relation to being coached. So I think it comes back down to the kind of baseline, what it is that you want to achieve you know, from this coaching process, program, relationship, and therefore at the end, during, middle, and at the end, and sometimes later, is that something that you did achieve? But it's also about impact as well. So what difference has that made back into the workplace? What do people notice now that's different for that individual, for that particular team, and ultimately maybe for the organisation? So there's lots of models and I know there's another podcast on evaluation. So, you know, there's lots of models. There's a Kirkpatrick model, as we know. I think mostly coaching um, programs, relationships, etc., are sort of measures from what I can tell from various surveys I've looked at that reaction level. So are people happy and the learning level? So we've already talked about learning as a process and a product at the end, but not so much about the application level. So back into the workplace, what is different? by the individual on the receiving end, by the individual that has supported them to that point, i.e. the coach, but also by the line managers, by other people in their team. So on a coaching programme I worked in recently, we did a baseline leadership competence questionnaire and then we did some training and then there was some coaching that went on and then we did a questionnaire again to see in terms of any competencies that might have changed or shifted and some of that inner stuff we talked about before about confidence and commitment and motivation so to have some kind of baseline and then target your coaching towards that and then have a look at the end and see what's changed and what's different because for me it's not coaching if something hasn't changed and isn't different um, the other thing I say about evaluation that 
we always seem to be using the kind of training or HRD related models of evaluation. And I guess there's some scope that maybe we should think about. Is there something particular or different we should look at for coaching evaluation? But I quite like the Cairns model. And he said that the first couple of levels of Kirkpatrick's really just validation levels. So they're just saying, yes, you did what you said you do. You know, people are happy. They've learned something. Yes, tick. But they're not really looking at evaluation. So the real value of anything until you see the application back into the workplace or wherever that the environment might be that that coachee takes that back into. So I think that's the important bit to look at in terms of evaluating um, the outcomes and the impact, if you like, of coaching. So I think back into the workplace, who sees what differently, what is different and, you know, how do we know, how can we tell and what difference does that make ultimately to the individual, which is most important, to the team, which is also very important. And ultimately, I guess, the organisation, because they're the ones that are normally paying, they want to see some kind of impact and some outcome. But at the end of the day, the value of it is in the eye of the beholder and the receiver of it. Well, Jenny, that was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much indeed for your time today. I really appreciated the opportunity to have a chat with you about coaching. Thank you, Darren. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back in the next section of our episode for the group conversation with Andrea. Lovely. Thank you. Up next, we have the group discussion, where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of Sherpa Coaching. Sherpa Coaching provides breakthrough executive coaching through a global network of certified coaches to help you get the most out of your talent. Since the company's founding in 2004, Sherpa Coaching has trained over 10,000 leaders and certified more than 600 coaches using the most widely recognized and respected program in the profession. Are you ready to get results? Sherpa Coaching's industry-leading coaches will help you and your team succeed. Learn more at sherpacoaching.com. Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass podcast. Our focus for this episode is coaching, and I've already met one-to-one with Andrea Ellinger and with Jenny Jones. And so for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Andrea and Jenny. Thank you, Darren. Great to be back. Nice to see you again. Yes, and I'll add the same. It's lovely to be with you too. So for our group discussion, I'd like to expand a little on some of the topics that we explored in our one-to-ones. And as a place to start, I'd like to focus in on the topic of coaches. And, and I've seen in organizations that they can make use of both internal and external coaches. So I'm wondering what you see as the benefits of each of those and how you'd recommend somebody goes about selecting a coach. Uh, interestingly over the last 10 years or so the CIPD in the UK have done a number of studies on you know what's on the up what's on the down in terms of sort of learning and development interventions and they they every year they talk about internal coaching is, is on the up so it's definitely on the up and I guess there's lots of benefits in using someone internally as your coach because um, I guess they know the context they know the climate and the culture of the organization uh, if it's part of a program then that kind of all makes sense as well um I, and I guess in, in, from a business point of view, there's kind of no direct cost. Obviously, there is a cost because the coach's time, your time, etc. Uh, but there's no direct cost. Whereas I guess 
the disadvantages of an internal coach would be all the above in a way because they do know the context and they know the climate and the culture which sometimes might lead to making assumptions or trying to solve the issue because they're in the same workplace um, and I guess maybe the coachee could be quite guarded if they're working with someone in the organization as well so there's a number of factors there's lots of positives but there's other factors to kind of think about particularly from a kind of guess a HR uh, perspective as well um, from an external coach point of view I guess there's the cost involved that might put you off and I guess that the external coach may not fully understand the context and the issues or the challenges you might be facing but I guess the upside of that is that there maybe there's less distractions because they're not in the same day job or the same workplace as you and I guess they bring external credibility because they work with other organizations and other people maybe of a you know a similar background or a, a similar need to to the person that's asking for the coach so I guess that's a long way of saying I think there's advantages and disadvantages of both I guess if you're going to choose a coach then I guess it all comes down to what are the goals what's the purpose you know, what are your aspirations? What do you want to get out of it? Is there someone internally the best one to support you with that? Or is an external kind of perspective needed? Um, so I guess it's about goals and aspirations for what you want to get out of it. Also, it's about the competencies and skills you might want your coach to have. So if you're thinking of a particular career in a particular area or something, and that isn't something that's available in terms of knowledge and skills in the workplace, maybe an external person might be better. Um, but what I would suggest if you anybody is thinking of having a coach is to talk to a few coaches um, internally, externally, um, find out what they're about, find out about their approach, find out if that kind of suits you. Because I really think, and also there's lots of research that backs it up as well, isn't there, that if you're looking for a coach, then ideally, you know, you have the choice. Don't let anyone say, I've got the perfect coach for you. You know, ideally meet a few people, find out what it is, talk to them about what it is that you want. Um, and then you can have a more tailored approach uh, from the coach in the first place. I think that was a great response, Jenny, and I agree with everything that you just shared. I did have one thought, though. When I think of internal coaching, typically those are like subject matter experts or colleagues. They generally aren't necessarily managers. So I thought I would just throw in a little bit of an insight about managerial coaches because they are growing and there's more of a demand for them as well in organizations. And I guess when I think about the benefits, of course, managers know their employees or should know their employees really, really well. Um, they can easily observe them. They understand the context, the politics, the culture, or many of the things that you spoke about. They can coach as needed and they can take and leverage coachable moments. Um, and they can also assess the outcomes because they're working with their employees, um, typically in a face-to-face -face context uh, and also can do so a little bit remotely. I also think though that there are some that say it's very difficult if managers aren't really well-versed in coaching they might not behave as, uh, as developmentally as we would hope they would. The line of authority is obviously an issue because a manager is always going to be in a position of authority and power. And there might be those moments when a manager has to revert to wearing more of a managerial hat. So they become more managerial focused and maybe the coaching then becomes directive. Uh, and I also guess there's the possibility of dependency and maybe even codependency. The only other thing I say is to pull back from something I mentioned before about the coachee perhaps being a little bit guarded about sort of their areas of development. And I guess if, if you're being coached by your manager, maybe people don't 
always feel they can be as honest with their direct manager. But I totally, I totally agree that, you know, the best person to talk about your development should be your manager because they should be in a position to support you for the future, shouldn't they? But yeah, interesting. Yeah. No, I think so too. And you know, and I was thinking about the comments that you had mentioned on selecting coaches, you know, particularly maybe it might be applicable to the external coaching um, context, but I'd also probably want to look to see what kind of, um, you know, kind of formal education and training or other professional coaching association training that's been, um, been taken. I'd kind of look for the hours that have been completed in training. I'd probably look for the repertoire of, of what kind of coaching context and kind of referrals in a way or different coaching venues that have been done. Um, and I'd look to see how they keep themselves current. So, if we think about the idea of coaching and the coaching process and selecting a coach and then somebody thinking through what happens during coaching and what to expect, the chances are that person's going to experience a coach who's working through certain models or using certain tools or certain techniques. And so I was wondering what are the most common coaching models, tools, and techniques that you come across that HRD professionals should therefore be aware of? Because coaching practice has often been criticized as being atheoretical, it might be a good kind of foundational place to start by thinking about some of the theories that really can inform coaching and do inform coaching and different kinds of coaching. Some of the, the best work I think that's been done that's looked at the theoretical underpinnings of coaching or what might be applicable are by Tatiana Bakarova, Elaine Cox, and David Clutterbuck. And they said that there's a number of different disciplines that in areas of knowledge that inform coaching, um, management, education, social sciences, philosophy, psychology in particular, and they all kind of converge in, in to help us expand the knowledge base. And they say that taking a multiplicity of perspectives and approaches can ultimately enrich the knowledge base we have and also the practice of coaching. So what they contend is that adult learning theory, uh, kind of what we might think of in terms of Malcolm Knowles and his work in the adult learner, experiential learning theory, kind of more attributed to Kolb's work, um, and then transformative learning theory, which most of us might think of uh, Jack Mesereau, would be really foundational theories that underpin pretty much all coaching practice because these theories and, and, and models, if you will, kind of help us to understand how coaching can contribute to learning growth and change among the individuals being coached. And the same scholars also outline in their um, really influential complete handbook of coaching, 13 different theoretical traditions that are influential in, in coaching. And then more recently, in terms of managerial coaching, more specifically, Hagen and Williams suggested that because a lot of the coaching, and particularly managerial coaching, is dyadic in nature, um, that this notion of social exchange theory, leader member exchange theories um, have been applied and are being applied um, kind of in research and they've also identified psychological contract, implicit person theory, self-determination theories as some others. So it's kind of interesting to see that we're seeing a little bit more of a, a foundational use of theory in coaching research, at least. Um, and what we also see is um, kind of models and techniques being very highly applied in practice. There are a lot of models that focus on the actual coaching session, the structure of the coaching session, which many consider to be very conversational in nature. Um, and they think about these in terms of phases, like the beginning, the opening of the conversation, the middle part and the ending part. 
probably the one that most would be familiar with is the notion of the GROW model. The acronym is really for goal, reality, options, and wrap-up. And sometimes the wrap-up phase might be what they call the will or the way forward phase. But then the GROW model itself has been amended, and there's a whole host of variants that have emerged from that. So there's the T-GROW model, which starts with kind of the topic, and then the goal, the reality, the options, wrap-up phase. The I-GROW model, which instead of topic, it's really what, what's the issue that's going to be addressed, and then what's the goal in doing so the current reality uh, options and, and then the pathways forward and then how to kind of wrap up, review, assess. There's also the So I Grow model. And then uh, our, the late Anthony Grant did a wonderful article where he actually elaborates on a lot of these models that are used in practice. And he kind of has, has come up with what he calls the regrow model, um, which really embeds a lot of uh, reflection and, and the ability to modify and go back uh, to different phases within the grow model. There's also the Oscar model, um, and then there's the clear model, and then some other models that uh, Anthony Grant noted are the achieve model, the practice model, and the outcomes model. Um, there's also models that focus on gap analysis like Eakin's skilled helper model. So all of these models um, either focus on exploring the preferred outcomes, like what do we want to get out of the coaching session first, or they might focus on what's the reality, like what's, what's the assessment of the current situation first before we actually then kind of move through the different components. So, you know, there's no shortage of models that could be available for practicing coaches and again, I think of models as kind of abstractions of reality. And so they're a good guide um, as your coaching expertise develops, because a lot of coaches start off as relatively new coaches, and then they kind of evolve into more expert coaches. The other sort of other tools and techniques I might throw in there, I guess, um, which fit within these models too, is things around support and challenge. So support and challenge model. So we start off with high support, low challenge. At the end, hopefully we leave with low support, high challenge, because we give them the tools to do it for themselves. The continuums as well, the coaching continuum, uh, Miles Downey with his directive, um, non-directive continuum, that model works, you know, is quite handy to think about when we're coaching, where are we on the spectrum, what do we need to do and why in terms of our movement up and down. Um, there's the appreciative inquiry model, which I think is increasingly popular in terms of the strength-based view around coaching. Um, and then I was thinking there's models sometimes for particular um, types of coaching. So there's the um, Ian Day, the facts model in relation to executive coaching, um, although you can use the facts model in other contexts as well. And then the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about the different sort of contexts or sectors that um, coaching mentoring has kind of risen through and from, I was thinking about some of the key leadership theories and I was thinking of the Ken Blanchard situational leadership model, which has got coaching in, but allows you to kind of move through and up um, from a directive state to a more non-directive state, which links to the Downey model from before. So I think there's a lot to choose from, isn't there? But I guess most of the time, I think the coaching models are underpinned or begin with some kind of grow. And then they expand and extend from that, depending on where you need to be heading, where the client wants you to be heading and the context in which you're in. So when I think of models, tools and techniques that a professional should know about, it, it takes me to a place of also thinking about the importance of knowing about ethics. And earlier in this season of the podcast, we released an episode focused on ethics. So 
I'm therefore wondering about whether there are particular ethical situations related to coaching and coaches that HRD professionals should be aware of. And, and if so, what the role is for supervision when such ethical situations emerge? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the ethical, the whole ethical side of coaching is oh so important, the most important aspect in terms of, you know, our professional conduct as coaches, whether we're manager as, as coaches or whether we are professional coaches or internal, external coaches, etc. Um, the global code of ethics is, is the place to start and the professional code of the differing accrediting or membership bodies that you might be sort of subscribed to. Um, but for me, it's about professional conduct at all times it's about thinking about making sure the client is always at the center of what you're doing and you're supporting them to do the best for themselves that you're thinking about confidentiality and privacy that you're thinking about avoiding harm and um, so the client the coachee avoiding harm to themselves to others to you etc but you also avoiding harm to them um, conflicts of interest as well I guess and I was thinking of you know, the dilemma that's come up for me really recently in terms of coaching is where the client's interests and needs might be different to the sponsoring organization's um, view of what that client might might need. So, you know, that's the sort of dilemma in itself, isn't it? So you've been paid or in contracted to do a particular role and to work with someone on a particular area, but actually they feel they don't want that, but they need something else. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ethical situations. I think they're not always challenging and critical ethical dilemmas but I think there's often ethical situations or sort of um, ordinary ethical situations that we find ourselves in on a on a kind of daily basis am I being too directive here should I be do I need to leave more time for silent you know so I think there's the ordinary dilemmas as a as a coach when we're working with our clients but also there's the kind of I guess the more challenging more serious um situations um so in terms of supervision i think this is exactly where that supervision comes in really because supervision is a regular opportunity and um, to talk to a like-minded kind of coaching expert if you like to, to share what these dilemmas might be so not just to share the terrible critical things that you know that you might be thinking are challenging or getting in the way of your coaching relationship but also to share some of the other critical incidents uh, positive or negative um, to get support around thinking about those so for me supervision is absolutely crucial I don't think any coach should call themselves a coach if they're not having a chance and an opportunity regularly to talk to a like-minded person about what might be going on it's good for sharing it's always good to talk isn't it helps you feel like you're not alone it gives you some clues and ideas about breaking some of the cycles or some of the issues you might be having um it's a way of assuring a sort of a certain amount of quality in terms of what you're doing and of course we mentioned I think Andrew mentioned before about um coaches in terms of you know their professional conduct and keeping up the standards if you like uh, of being able to coach well so it's another opportunity to make sure we are doing the best we can and doing it even better next time so for me I think in short I think there's lots of ethical situations I don't think they're always dilemmas and always crucial but either way um, the supervisor is, is the person to go to about that and to get the support and the challenge to, to do something differently next time. Yeah, and I would agree with everything you said, Jenny. And a couple things that came up for me as I was thinking about this, and, and they might be 
things that could be similarly attributed to some of the challenges and drawbacks that might often be associated with mentoring, such as, you know, unwanted relationships that might develop, um, you know, as a result of the, the coaching, although we, you know, we would try to take all those precautions, but sometimes that is a possibility. The notions of dependency, or maybe codependency, uh, issues of jealousy, power, control, just to name a few of them. So I think that there are some things that can surface Although, you know, when we think of coaching, we, we're really trying to think of a very collaborative co-learner type of um, relationship. But, you know, some of these things could could actually incur. Um, and that's like where you said that the supervision piece is really critical. And I guess when I think of supervision, I think of really coaching for the coach. And, you know, typically a lot of the supervision literature really speaks to, you know, this as a as an approach for assuring quality, quality, and also, um, you know, making sure that ethical standards are maintained, as you mentioned, um, but also about the growth and development of, of the coachee, or the coachee in this case, who is the coach when being, you know, engaged in a supervision kind of context. So I also think what's important to note is that there are some professional memberships um, of associations that in order to be a member, you actually have to, you know, commit to having coaching supervision. Now, earlier in the episode, uh, Andrea mentioned how coaching has sometimes been criticized as being atheoretical, which makes it sound like it suffers from a similar research to practice gap as the rest of HRD. Now, is that the case? And if so, what research do you think is needed in the future to help close that gap between research and practice? I do think that there might be some genres or types of coaching that might just be a little bit better developed or more developed in terms of research and theory than others. Um, for example, to me, executive coaching is, has been pretty well established um, and research has generally uh, suggested that it, it has the efficacy in helping the coachee to develop a number of different skills and capabilities. Um, but even those that research and write in the executive coaching realm often speak about academic research lagging behind practice. Uh, when I think about managerial coaching or what is also in, called employee coaching and, and then in particular team and peer coaching, the research bases aren't as well developed as maybe what's occurring in practice. So, you know, I think because some of these different types and genres are still kind of in their infancy stages in terms of developing, you know, a body of evidence about them, I think that we will see that practitioners are doing things in practice that maybe research hasn't yet caught up with. You know, I think about the models of coaching that we just talked about. And, you know, Anthony Grant some time ago said, you know, a lot of these models are being used, but we really haven't, you know, done an awful lot of research about them um, and what models are optimal under what coaching circumstances, et cetera. So I do think we have this. And I think, um, you know, the way to kind of close the gap is, you know, I, I think that it, I don't know if we'll ever close the gap, but certainly as I think about it, you know, there's a lot of research that can be undertaken that might actually look at what's happening in practice to, to further, you know, understand practice and then to actually build an evidence base that's built on practice. Um, you know, when I think about the, the a, a array of research possibilities, you know, there's certainly a whole host of things that can be done. Certainly, I think in, in Dehan and Gannon spoke about this, it's really critical, is that the relationship aspects of coaching really haven't been well understood or examined. You know, the coach and coachee and the factors that might influence that relationship is really critical. 
when I think of managerial coaching, I think of a lot of opportunities because that's kind of where my passion is and where I love to think about the, the longer term future research opportunities. And when we think about um, what could be possible, a lot of work so far has really explored what employees gain from the, the, the manager as coach, lesser attention being paid to what managers gain or benefit from the coaching, how it might facilitate their own development as managers and leaders, why they do it, um, a little bit more about the characteristics and experiences that they bring, their mindsets, the benefits they derive from it. And again, there's a little bit more growth around the diversity issues in terms of coaching. And you know, we see a little bit more research focused on gender issues, race, ethnicity, and the coaching relationship is along with culture and cultural dynamics and cross-cultural perspectives. Sometimes it really looks at what's the gender or race or ethnicity of the coach or it might be of the receiving coachee, but you know, we really don't have a lot of research that looks at all these dynamics in place because it's very complex. So I think that there's a, a, a huge um, opportunity in the coaching realm to really look at different genres of coaching, to look at relational aspects of coaching, diversity implications, how to use coaching to build more diverse organizations, et cetera. As you quite rightly said, there's a growing body of evidence around some aspects uh, of coaching. Certainly picking up on what you said, Andrea, about the technology, I think for the future, there's um, more research to be done around the sort of digital impact using virtual coaching versus face to face, etc. I think you mentioned diversity as well. I, I totally agree that that's a growing sort of body of uh, of research, I think, and particularly more recently, um, neurodiversity, um, that that's an area that I think is is becoming very topical and very interesting. There's certainly some gaps in our understanding around that area. And I guess the final thing to pick on something you said, Andrew, right at the very beginning of your answer was around the different contexts. So I think context is everything. I think that about leadership. I think that about HR. I think that about coaching and mentoring as well. So the context is everything. So I think there's still more scope to look at different contexts, different types of coaching in different types of contexts and thinking about where there might be some real differences and some real patterns and themes that are emerging from those different contexts. So, uh, yeah, that would be my kind of summary of future future areas or future gaps. So as a final question, um, you both just referenced in different ways the increasing trend towards virtual coaching. And I, I've seen that a lot of companies now offer virtual or blended coaching to employees. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that trend and whether there are limitations or challenges that HRD professionals should be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think it is an increasing trend. I think we've both mentioned the sort of the advent of kind of technology and there's lots of kind of coaching and mentoring platforms or e-support that's offered to people that are coaching or mentoring. And I think certainly in the last few years with um, the COVID-19 pandemic as well, suddenly everything had to go online, whether you wanted a coach online or not. Um, that seemed to be um, the, the way things went. Um, so I think it's the virtual coaching has been around for some time, though, because I guess if you say phone calls are kind of virtual or online and e-coaching emails, et cetera, um, have been a kind of virtual um, approach. But I think, yes, yeah, certainly in the last couple of years, um, using Zoom, Skype and, you know, other other ones are available uh, using um, those different um, platforms has really helped. 
um, coaching become much more accessible to many more people at many different times of the day than perhaps it might not ordinarily have been. Um, I mean, I think virtual coaching, you know, it is convenient. It is an increasing trend. It reduces time lost in terms of travel, moving between locations. Um, you know, the beauty of uh, using something like Zoom for your coaching is you can record it, obviously with the client's permission, but then they can play it back if they want to. Or if, if you're researching, some, you know, you can transcribe what, what, what's been said so you've got a better record. Um, so I think that there's lots of advantages because one of the main sort of uh, challenges when it comes to coaching, if, if it's not within an organisation, but you're the coach that's outside the organisation, is the time commitment, the travel, etc. Well, all of that has gone if if it's a phone call or it's an email or it's a, a Zoom conversation. So I think there's lots of lots of positives um, around a virtual approach and certainly around a blended approach. Um, for me, I must admit, I'm a bit old school. I do like to see the person and ideally I like to see the person in the same room as me. <laughs> um, but I do find, you know, Zoom is accessible, um, you know, to most people um, with the, you know, with the sort of basic technology. So I think a Zoom conversation is better than no conversation at all. But ideally, a blended approach works for me where we can do a bit of emailing, a few phone calls, but also some face to face, whether that's virtual face to face or real face to face. Yeah. And you know what? You made a great point, Jenny, about, you know, the notion of technology. And I really think when we talk about e-coaching and, you know, virtual coaching or remote coaching, coaching at a distance, it's important to think about what is the technology that's being deployed. You know, the telephone's been around for a very long time. And of course, using a regular telephone minimize the opportunity to observe anything, nonverbal cues, facial expressions, et cetera. So that might've been a drawback of that approach. But as technology has become more sophisticated, you know, we have teleconferencing, you mentioned the Zoom, Skype video conferencing and other platforms, um, you know, mobile texting, use of apps, uh, social media, and even artificial intelligence. So, you know, I think that there's a host of different technologies that are available. And Laura Berma does a nice job in a chapter of a, a forthcoming book edited by Holly Hutchins and Raji Gosh on uh, developmental relationships and understanding them in different facets of them. Um, so I think, you know, we have a lot of, of, of possibilities here by using different kinds of technologies. Um, I know that there was a fairly recent study in 2020 that um, Huey and colleagues did where they looked at different kinds of coaching and, you know, uh, like a facilitative and like maybe a more directive style. And they found that mobile texting worked really well when a facilitative style of coaching was being used by managers. But I think, again, we kind of discussed this a little bit earlier. This is a very ripe area for more research. And certainly we can learn a lot from what's happening in practice to guide a lot of those research endeavors. Well, unfortunately we've reached the end for our time today, but I want to say a big thank you to both of you for all of your time and for our conversations. I've really enjoyed our discussion on coaching. Thank you both so much indeed. Oh, I've really enjoyed it too. It's been wonderful to connect with you and have this conversation. It's really stimulated a lot of thinking and, and it's been just really a lot of fun. Yeah, and thanks from me too. Great to see you both again. And yeah, thanks for, for sharing your opinions. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Andrea and with Jenny. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others.
There were 11 episodes in the first season and we're releasing a further 11 here in the second. Between them, they provide access to conversations with 50 leading HRD scholars. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsors. The University of Southern Mississippi's Human Capital Development Programs. Find out more by googling USM space HCD. You'll find their page at the top of the search results or by emailing them at schoolofleadership at usm.edu. And by Sherpa Coaching. Are you ready to activate your leadership potential? Sherpa Coaching can help. Learn more about them at sherpacoaching.com. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.